Hi, I'm Adam Robert Lewis, and you're listening to the Brewing Actors Podcast. My chance to talk to actors to hear their stories, what inspired their performances, and what decisions or relationships influence their work. On today's episode, I think it's absolutely crucial that you read the play. The amount of people who come in and go, I've just read the sides. Because it, it, you have to remember an audition is not about you coming in to get the job. It's about you coming in to meet to meet the team because you might not be right for this. And it's about starting a relationship up. I think that's important. But also, if you don't like the play or the musical, then there's no real reason to come in. So, you know, I, I'd like people to read the play. Um, and to make a choice, I think that's also something that's really important. Say hello to everyone, to remember there's a pianist in the room. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, more than anything, I think the chat is as important as the performance. What I want to see is that someone's going to sit down and they want to be creative, they want to have questions, they want to be alert, they want to be engaged in the process. Um, so I, I, I put value on that two minutes, that's all we get two minutes at the beginning of a meeting going who are you where'd you come from you know what is it that excites you about theatre I just want to get a little sense of your passion for theatre my guest today is stage director Charlotte Westenra after graduating with first class honours for drama at the University of Manchester Charlotte's career started at the Donmar Warehouse where she was the resident assistant director between 2004 and 2005 for the Donmar, she directed Kiss of the Spider-Woman and Lower Ninth. Charlotte was also associate director on Frost and Nixon to Michael Grandage, starring Frank Langella and Michael Sheen. Charlotte has been recognised for numerous awards, including an Olivier Award for Outstanding Achievement in an Affiliate Theatre, as associate director to Nicholas Ken for Bloody Sunday. Most recently, Charlotte has directed two musicals, The Wicker Husband at the Watermill Theatre and Indecent Proposal at Southwark Playhouse. So, like any story, we have to start at the very beginning. Queen Charlotte's Hospital, which helped with my name. Um, my mum was a model. Uh, my real dad was an actor. So it was very much, I think acting was very much in the, in the blood. Um, but I was actually brought up by my stepfather, which is where the name Western Rail comes from. And he was a drugs rehab counsellor. So very different to the world that I was in. Did your mother and stepfather see a lot of theatre? Um, not my stepfather. My stepfather is the most supportive man in the world, but he has no interest in theatre whatsoever. And he'll like come and see my shows just to kind of be supportive. But it, it, it's not really his world. But my mum was like something completely different. She has a really interesting life uh, story. Um, she was brought up by a gay couple who ran the Gate Theatre in Dublin. 
So she grew up around actors. She grew up literally like in a theatre. So (laughs) she loves the theatre. And as long as I can remember, we were talking about theatre, going to visit um, shows, going up to London to see shows. Um, Yeah, it was very much part of my upbringing. Did you do a lot of acting in school or when you were younger? Yeah, I did a lot of acting and um, I really wanted to be an actor. Um, And I think, uh, because I saw my dad, my real dad in films, and I think I wanted to be like him. And, you know, he got to travel the world and make all these exciting films. But I just realised it came to a head when I was about 17. I realised I just was really, really bad at acting. And so I was like, oh, I don't know what to do because it was the only thing I was good at. Drama was the only thing I was good at at school. I wasn't academic. I really struggled. I was dyslexic. So I think that theatre was kind of my release. And when I realised I wasn't good at acting, I kind of struggled. I was like, are there any other jobs out there? And then I was like, oh, I could be a director. And 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 I think that's I think that probably came about because at that point my mum was dating a theatre director. You know, I do feel very strongly that um, people. Are, young people need to see different jobs out there for them to be able to envision that that's something that they could have. And I don't reckon if I'd met this, if I hadn't met this theatre director, I wouldn't have even considered that there was such a job. But when I did meet him, I was like, okay, amazing. That's something that I could do because I love theatre, but I don't like being on stage. Obviously, you know, there's so many paths for an actor in terms of training and uh, getting into the industry, but there's not that many courses, or maybe there wasn't at the time, uh, courses to support kind of going into directing. Um, not that I remember. No, I think I think the traditional way. Um, when uh, I was, uh, you know, thinking about going to university was to go to Oxbridge. So there was a whole raft of directors that we all looked up to, your Nick Heitner's, um, Nicholas Kent, um, all of those people who'd been to Oxbridge and who studied English and then they went on to uh, run theatres and create theatre like that. And obviously I didn't have the option. I'd never would have got the grades to get into um, Oxbridge. I don't remember there being many courses, but um, my drama teacher really encouraged me to go to Manchester because he said that wherever you go to study drama, you need to be somewhere where there's a lot of theatre happening. And I didn't really want to be in London because, um, you know, at that point I was living in London and you want to get away from your parents, Mm. don't you? Mm. (laughs) So Manchester seemed like a really, really good fit. Um, I think when I was there though, someone said there's a really good training course and that's at the Donmar and and that's when I um, thought about applying for that. What did the course in Manchester cover? Did you do any acting while you were there? Uh, No, hardly any at all. I mean, uh, it was very much, it was like an academic course, stu- right. the studying drama. Um, there were practical elements to it. So like you made a film. I did a lot of TIE, theatre and education. That was something I was mm. really uh, into. I think there were modules where you could do acting, but I think by that point I'd washed my hands of it. So I, um, uh, you know, I, I avoided them. Um, but it was quite a radical 
Um, of course, it was very left-wing. There was a lot of political theatre that we covered. Um, our alumni were people like David Edgar, who was this amazing, you know, political theatre writer. So he was, became a hero of mine. Um, but yeah, it was... No, I think what was exciting about it is it made me look at theatre that I probably... Uh, would never have come across if I hadn't been open to it. Like we did a lot of performance art and that's something that is not a part of who I am, but it was great to see that. Can you remember the first production that you had an opportunity to direct? Oh my goodness, yeah. Not just that, I found my notes the other day um, for, so I was um, making a, a, a bookshelf under lockdown and I found my original note and it was called, uh, the play was Female Parts by Dario Fo and Franca Rama. Um, and you can see it's really interesting because I sort of feel like I've come full circle. Um, very non-naturalistic, very kind of energetic, um, these wonderful political feminist monologues that these two great Italian writers had written. Um, I'd sort of exploded some of them. I remember that they weren't just single people on stage, that there was puppetry. I used a lot of music. It was very colourful. It was probably a total mess, if I'm honest. Like, thinking back on it, it probably was a mess. But I know it had a lot of energy and a lot of kind of political um, passion in it. Um, so, yeah, I kind of admire that that was the first play I directed. When you graduated, did Manchester give you a steer on where you could go to further your um, training? Or is it kind of like, you know, thank you and goodbye? Um, I think it was more you graduate all the best, as far as I can remember. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I had a really great year group. And I think... I mean, I'm sure, I know you're interviewing lots of people about their experience at drama school, but I'm sure you'll have heard this. It's the people in your year, it's your cohort that make up your time wherever you are. And I think we were all very supportive of each other. And we all ended up working, well, not all, but most of us ended up working for the same agency. So we'd help each other get jobs, um, doing little reception work. Um, but no, I just came down to London and was, right, I'm going to be a theatre director. And I kind of just expected everyone to like open the doors and go, oh, it's Charlie, we've been waiting for you for years and you're here. And it just didn't happen. <laughs> I was really like, I wasn't angry. I was just a bit bemused. I was like, what, people don't want to hire me to put on shows in their theatre? <laughs> yeah, it is something that has come up a lot in these podcasts that, you know, you kind of graduate and you have this hey world, you're I am attitude. Um, and I think, you know, there's certain elements of the industry that I just had no idea about until I kind of tried to hustle and, and get a job. And that's something that I think maybe they could address or, or, or you know, nurture a little bit more in drama schools um, because, you know, let's face it, drama school is probably the most amount of acting you will do um, if you're, un you know, if you're un unlucky and you don't go straight into a job. But, you know, I think, and also keeping up with your training and understanding the other aspects of the industry from production to... Yeah, I don't 
think we talked about it at all. I remember one thing on the course, like we never spoke about what a stage manager does. I mean, that to me now is like mind blowing, like one of the core parts of putting a show on. Those things we just didn't discuss. It was kind of, it was a lot about the theory and the practical nature of how you break in to um, theatre wasn't talked about. I remember I was reading this book, which I think is rather brilliant. It's called uh, Letters to George. It's by Max Stafford Clark. I don't know if you know it, but it... Yeah, I've heard of it, but I've not read it. It's really good. And he's talking about... He's writing letters to George Farquhar every day after rehearsals because George Far- he, he Max Stafford Clark worked with new writers all the time and George Farquhar was obviously dead, so he thought he'd write a letter to him to discuss his play. And at one point he says, no one ever talks about money when it comes to theatre. And I think that's true. The very practical nature of how you get money, how it's used. He said, he remembered a critic um, writing in a review about how actors were being doubled and how it didn't work. And he's like, that's the only way to put a show on. You know, it's, I think you need to understand the economics for a theatre director. You need to understand the economics of theatre. Um, I think that's like a baseline. And I, I don't think that is covered enough. Was the Donma your first professional opportunity to direct? Um, no. No, I am... Um Actually, my first bit of training, which was hugely influential on me and has completely changed who I am as a practitioner, was at the Tricycle Theatre. So, um, obviously, having done, um, you know, plays like Female Part, also I trained with Augusta Boal in Brazil. Um, he's very political. Using mm. theatre to kind of change Um, hearts and minds and actually in that case changed the laws so my interest was very much about how theatre could be used as a um, as a a, a, you know as as theatre as journalism or or that kind of thing and the tricycle were amazing at doing that kind of work and they just done the Stephen Lawrence inquiry they have these the tricycle tribunal players and I, I I saw a couple of their shows and I was you know, I, I I just thought they were wonderful. And um, so I got in touch with Nick Kent and he gave me my first ever job. I was an assistant to Christopher Morahan on a Pinter play. Imagine I was like working with Harold Pinter on my first, my first ever job. I was like, yeah, this is fun. Like, he was like, years later, I go, oh my God, want to shake myself. Um, and what's, then- it like, what's it like working on a Pinter play? Because there, are, there is a lot of stage directions in the script. And um, mm. what's that kind of... Yeah, I mean... Uh, I worked with him twice, actually, years later. I then worked with him on Old uh, old Times that was direct. I was assistant to Roger Michelle then. I think it's about precision. I think I probably learned from him precision of text. And um, that's something that I think is hugely important. And you're right. All of those stage directions, they make up the subtext. And a lot of theatre, if you think of what theatre is, is um, I think it's Owen McCafferty, so something like theatre is about people in a room who can't leave. And you get that so heightened with any... You get that almost in its purest form with Pinter. It's about a room, there's a fear of something outside and they don't leave that room and it's nearly always in the same room. And um, yeah, I, I, I think 
that that attention to that forensic attention to um, the stage directions, the beats, the listening to each other, really um, is a is a is a brilliant grounding for anyone who wants to be a director. What's it like assisting somebody? Um, I guess you were the you were assisting on your first job, right? Yeah, so I, I, uh, my first job, I assisted Christopher Morahan, um, who was a sort of very old school director. I think everyone used to call him the headmaster. <laughs> um, he actually, he was lovely to me and so supportive. Adam, I'm not going to lie, I did absolutely nothing on that show. <laughs> I don't think I contributed anything. And I think I was just very naive and I was a bit lost. I didn't really understand what a role what the role of an assistant director is. Now I know exactly what the role is. Um, but I then moved, so my next job was assisting uh, Nick Kent on um, Justifying War, which was about the Dr. David Kelly inquiry. And that's kind of where I clicked into the, um, it was these two great loves of mine, theatre and politics came together. So at the time there was an inquiry into the death of Dr. David Kelly and um, I went every day to the Royal Courts of Justice and I was buzzed through with a press pass that my friend at The Guardian had got me and I sat making notes about every single person who came onto the stand and then Nick and Richard from The Guardian, Richard Norton Taylor from The Guardian, they um, edited it down and of course all of those notes I had about the the real people who the actors would be portraying, I then handed those over to the actors. So that was quite a specific um, assistant job, you know, an assistant job. And obviously a lot of my work wasn't like that after then. With an assistant directing position, um, once the show opens, is your main job then to maintain the vision of the original director? Yeah, absolutely. Is it difficult to do? Did you enjoy that aspect of the job? Oh, I loved it. Oh, my goodness. I just loved it. And, I mean, really, so I, you know, I've noticed show twice a week, and I always sort of feel that I try to give notes in the voice of whoever was directing. Because, you know, you, you know, you don't want to go out to an actor and give a note that's completely different to the director because... Your job is never to split the power base. It's always, always to support your director in whatever they do. So if you can just give notes in their kind of style, then I think that helps the actor understand. But uh, yeah, that was that was great because I also felt, well, after doing a lot of assisting, I felt I had different directors who I could draw from and different styles of directing. I saw some who were hugely energetic. Um, Adam, you work with me, so you know I'm quite yeah. an energetic director, but hugely energetic directors who were always on their feet, bouncing, you know, who kind of fit what I would say is my model of a director. And I would see other directors who would just sit back and be so zen and just give one note every, you know, 10 minutes. And they're very, very different styles, but both work. And I think it's about being true to your own voice. That's what I, that's what, you know, I came to in the end. I do think that's one of the uh, main things I really enjoyed about uh, drama school was working with different directors uh, across the year. 
And obviously each director has a different style or a different way of directing the actor. And I think in some situations, the ones that I felt probably less comfortable were the ones that I learned more. Or, or um, And I think that's probably the same assisting di- different directors. You get a kind of draw on their different palettes, if you like, of uh, and styles um, and maybe put it into your own approach. How we learn, isn't it? Assisting a director, while you were there, did you kind of have the, you know, the urge to direct your own piece? And did they give you an opportunity to do that there? I got promoted from being assistant to associate and then to being co-director. Right. So I was... What is the biggest difference between being an assistant and then an associate? Um, um, it's more responsibility. You kind of have more equal weight as a director. Right. Um, I think it just means you can put more input into it. Um, but what happened was um, I didn't really get a chance to direct my own show at the tricycle because at that point I got offered the traineeship at the Dunmar. And uh, I had to choose whether to stay at the tricycle or go to the Dunmar. But it seemed like a no-brainer to me because, you know, the the training at the Dunmar is really rigorous and it's supported, it's financially supported. Um, and, yeah, it was basically it was kind of my dream job. So I landed that and I wasn't going to turn it down. How did you manage to land that position there? Um, Ken, I'm so surprised I got it now looking back. I mean, I, I, I was, I, I just applied. I sent through my CV. I'd done some other work, not just at the tricycle. I'd done some of my own work. I did directed Waiting for Lefty at the Battersea Arts Centre. Um, and I interviewed and I, my first interview went terribly badly. Um, I didn't realise at the time it was going badly, but I realised afterwards that it was. And um, I remember just not answering all the questions and just, I was a bit hesitant. I think I was a bit shy. I think that's what it was. Anyway, I got a rejection letter and I wasn't really surprised. And then about two weeks later, they said, we'd like you to come in again. And I think they'd gone through rounds and they hadn't found a fit. So they gave me an opportunity for a second interview. And I just went, right, don't hold anything back. Just be really honest, be really open. And I realized that Michael wasn't looking for, I think I'd been holding back because I thought, well, I better not say that because it's not the right answer. And of course, there's no such thing as a right answer in theater. Michael didn't want to find an assistant. Sorry, this is Michael Grandage, who was the artist director at the time he didn't want to find an assistant director who was like him he wanted to find someone who had their own voice um so I just went this is who I am and they obviously seemed to like it because I started working for them so mm. so what was it like joining the Donmar I mean it was it's I mean it 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 changed who I was as an artist. It was a dream job. And again, it's, I mean, that's, as I said, I got to assist lots of very, very different directors um, who've had a huge influence on my career and on me as an artist, especially Roger Michelle and Michael Brandage and um, Jonathan Kent. You know, these really, really, really brilliant, brilliant um, 
directors who I learned so much from. Also working with actors of such a high caliber, um, engaging with them, giving notes, that was very exciting. But I think what happened was when you weren't in rehearsals, which was very rarely, you were usually in rehearsals, but when you weren't, you really got involved in the whole running of the, the Dunmar building. So I would be on different attachments. So I worked a little bit. They had a small literary department. So I would do script reports or I'd help out at the um, fundraisers for the development team. But most importantly, I worked with Anne McNulty, who was the casting director there. And I think that's the other part of my career um, that I'm most proud of is the casting work I've done alongside her. So suddenly, you know, you'd come in in the morning and she'd say, check X number of actors. And her mind is so fast. She's got this kind of encyclopedic brain with all these actors that she pulls from, from her head and she can go, oh yeah, that person played Buckingham in, in this production of Richard III in whatever year. And you're like, Anne, how do you know this much information? But I think her passion for actors really, really rubbed off on me. And yeah, that was hugely important. You were a resident there from 2004 to 2005. Did they then give you a production to direct? Yeah. So I've directed two shows for the Dunmar. The first one, I think it was 2007. Right. Um, Kiss of the Spider Woman with um, Will Keane and, and, and Rupert Evans. That was absolutely heaven. What was that like going from being an assistant to directing your own piece? You know, was it daunting? Um, were you a little scared? <laughs> I was scared. I was very scared. But I also, I felt very comfortable because I did feel like the Dunmar was my home. And I still feel it. It's like I go into that theatre and I, you know, I, there's a little bit upstairs where everyone stands and there's a little part where I used to always sit. And, you know, I felt like I know this place. It's the same at the tricycle. You know, when you train or you become attached to a building, it seems less, less, less scary. I think, I think one of the things that really struck me was as a director working there, working with such an incredible team, I used to say things like, oh, I wonder if you should sit at this moment. And the next day you'd go into rehearsals and there'd be a chair there. And like the stage man, you, you were like, oh my goodness, I've got to watch what I say because there is a team who were working and, and they will provide stuff. So, you know, that was, that, that, that made me think a lot. But um, uh, yeah, I, I loved it. You know, it was joyous. What's first day of rehearsals like for you? Because I vividly remember my first day of rehearsal with you. But do you do you have a, a certain style on a first day or a setup that you, or does it change per, you know, piece no, of theatre you direct? You tell me then why you're laughing. What was my, well, what was the first day like? Well, I can remember we had an email to say, right, I want you to bring something that your character would... Um, have in their pocket and I thought right okay um so but I can just remember sitting in a circle and I have a bit of a thing for circles sitting in a circle I feel I don't know get, get I don't know I feel uncomfortable um but well, I, I just thought it was very it was there was a lot of um table work on the very first day um in terms of I think we did the uh, chatted about our characters, what, what we had in our pockets. Then we went straight into trying to develop a timeline. 
And it was one of the most interesting things which we had never done before on a um, on a first day in order to try and and, it, and the timeline evolved as we went along. And other people's timelines affected what I what I put into play. And before we, but by the end of the rehearsal period, we had this massive timeline, and I. It, it it was incredible to see everybody's contribution in a way and how it affected the timeline and people's opinions and it felt it became it felt less like table work as the more we moved on it was a fluid thing that changed so i always do what do you have in your pocket right. <laughs> Because I uh, I love it. It's so just for for your listeners. I say bring one thing in that your character might carry in their pocket, because I think um, it's a practical thing that you can bring in rather than like go away and write a backstory, which seems to me a little bit intellectual. Um, it, it feels like a little practical thing, and it's also something that some actors will find useful. Like if you, especially if you're multi-rolling and you're jumping in and out of character, you can just put your hands in your pocket and you go, oh, I've got a pen knife, that's this character. And it's a way to help root yourself. But also I think it's a fun little game on the first, it's a bit of an icebreaker on the first day of rehearsals. And there's often, you know, and it doesn't matter if people forget, there's often someone who does something really funny. And we did it, oh my goodness, my last show I directed. I did it with my cast. Sorry, can I diverge a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First day rehearsals for The Wicker Husband. And I'm doing this thing, which is, what have you got in your pocket? And there's one guy and he looks like terrified. I'm like, oh my God, I put him on the spot. And he goes into his pocket and he pulled out something like 17 different items. I mean, like a pipe, a trumpet, <laughs> um, a horseshoe. I mean, we were, we were crying with laughter by the end of it. And I lifted it up and we put it into the show. So that was like his little moment that made it into the show. So yeah, it's just, a, it's an icebreaker. I didn't, I don't always do a timeline. Um, did we do a read through? Adam? Yeah, we did a read through. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, I sometimes do, and I sometimes have to do a read-through for timing. But what I like to do is have achieved something on the first day. Um, so that's probably why I started with the timeline. Mm, and you, and that's just, and the what you have in your pocket. I remember when we did Guy Fawkes. I think I bought a pack of leeks. That's right, because you were playing. <laughs> you were playing the um, oh, the um, conspirator. What was his yeah. name? You remember? Uh, John. John. I think it was John Adams, was it? There yeah, John Adams. Um, that was a great, that was a great, I, I loved that. That was such a great show. It will happen one day, I hope. Such a great script, I thought, as well, which is not something that always happens with a musical, I think. Um, but I want to talk about uh, Frost and Nixon um, because... I'm not sure whether other, th but Frost and Nixon did transfer from the Donmar to the Gielgud, I think, right? right? And I wanted to talk about what the process is being an associate and, and getting that sort of, um, I don't know, the deal that, that brings it into the, the West End, I guess. Um, what was it like working with two, one, a huge movie star and Michael Sheen? who I guess was, was relative, but I mean, Frank Langella is very steeped in the, in the American movie system there. Yeah, but also the American... Theatre. Theatre as well, yeah. yeah. He's just played the father, I think, um, 
at the public theater, I think at the public, uh, which was, um, oh, which yeah. was you. Yeah, yeah. And apparently it, he's had rave reviews about it. It was incredible oh, performance. Incredible, incredible actor. But then so was Michael Sheen, you know, yeah, I was like, wow, I get to work with Michael Sheen. Um, yes. Uh, you're, your question was, what was it like? Is it, is it, is it daunting working with, with those people? Or having to direct those people, I guess, once the show is up and running and to give notes? Yeah, I mean, they were interesting. I mean, actors of that calibre, of course, you have, you know, they were interesting. They were very, very different actors. And it was a big company. And also I wasn't on it at the Donmar because there was an assistant director who was doing my job when I was at the Donmar was on it. So I only looked after it when it came into the Gilgood. Um, and it was just, you know, really exciting to be working with those, um, with those actors. And also I was working with understudies. Um, uh, every actor is different and you've got to find, I guess, your own relationship with them. Um, Michael was just joyous. I just think he's, he's sort of so full of life. And every time he was on stage, absolutely a, a, a electric. And um, yeah, I, I didn't <laughs> give him a, a huge lot of notes, if I'm honest. You know, he's pretty, you know, it, it, but, but um you know, I just learned a huge amount watching him. And I just thought he was a really generous person. He was a generous company member, you know. There was a real warmth about him. Frank was very different. Frank loved getting notes. Like, literally, he would go, Charlie, what day are you in? And I'd go, I'm in this day and this day. And he'd go, right, wait. And he, we would sit down in his dressing room. And he would engage. Like, every note I gave to him, he'd want to talk about and we discuss it and then we move on to the next um the next bit so that was kind of, that was again it was um a privilege to sit and talk to him but it's also very very unusual um, there's no actor i've ever come across like that um as 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 frank langella was i mean he really really loved engaging and chatting about the performance and did i notice that this was different and what about that and do you think he should do it like this and and uh yeah i was surprised but obviously it was thrilling i mean uh uh i'd actually worked with frank before we went into the theater because when he was at the Dunmar, i was also helping him learn his lines so in the evening after his rehearsals i used to go around and we would do you know i would read in for him and we'd practice his lines. so i had quite a good relationship with him before we when we went into the gilbert more from charlotte in a moment Sit down, relax, and listen to Brewing Actors Podcast with a cup of Coal Town Coffee. Coal Town Coffee is roasted on-site at our HQ and Roastery in Ammonford, South Wales. Our coffee is sustainable and ethically sourced, and we believe the fairer the deal between producer and farmer, the higher the quality and taste of the coffee in your cup. Use the code BREWINGACTERS10 to receive 10% off your orders at coaltowncoffee.co.uk. I'm Adam Robert Lewis, and you're listening to the Brewing Actors Podcast. 
I continue my conversation with Charlotte Westenra. Mm. I never, I never saw that, but obviously I've I've seen the film. Um, when it, obviously the understudies for that show, and you're directing those, I guess Michael uh, Michael Grandish doesn't direct them, right? No. So are they allowed as understudies to put their own spin on it? Or was it a very set, um, you know, performance that obviously you, you're recreating characters that, you know, are real and they've, there's a lot of footage of them and people, maybe audience members that are expected to go and physically see Frost and Nixon on stage. So was it, um, how much room is there for, for change in the understudy um, rehearsals? Well, I mean, I guess you'll know from Phantom. I mean, I don't know if it's the same, but obviously you have to hit this, the right marks. Yeah. Because, um, so, so in terms of freedom of movement, mm. you have to know that by this line you have to get here because a light's going to ping up on you. And especially mm. with Frost Nixon, it was so specific. Like, um, I mean, my goodness, they were brilliant, those actors. They would walk down stage centre, they would hit that mark, the lights would come on, the cameras would be on, and then the cameras would take, would, would, um, uh, reflect the image up on the screen. So it was very, very specifically choreographed. But within that, we encouraged the actors to have as much freedom and creativity as possible and to make their own kind of take on the piece. Um, Rufus Wright was Michael Sheen's understudy and he was in the, he was playing Frost's like right-hand man. So he had done all of the rehearsals with Michael as this character. But when he was understudying Michael, um, he, you know, he put his own interpretation on it. And um, he was amazing, like absolutely brilliant. And one day we were in the theatre and Michael was in the theatre too. And we got the note that Michael, sorry, Michael Brandage was in the theatre and Michael Sheen couldn't go on. And so Rufus went on for Frost and um, it was just like one of those nights where the whole theatre was electric. And I was sat next to Michael Grandage and I was like, I hope he's going to be proud of what Rufus has done. I hope he's going to be proud of what I've done with him. And he was over the moon. And I think those moments where you see someone stepping up and owning a part and making it their own, that's what's exciting. So after Frost and Nixon uh, and obviously the Donmar, did you make a decision to step away from the Donmar warehouse to explore your own work? Um, what kind of, what was the... Well, um, the contract was only for a year. Um, right. The traineeship is only ever for a year because, right. you know, it's a year long traineeship so that they get more and some, you know, more and more directors go through. Um, um, and, uh, but what had happened was I came back for Frost and Nixon and I came back for Piaf and I came back to do my own thing. So it wasn't really that I decided to step away. It was like, I, it was important that I stepped away, but I did come back um, on those four occasions. Mm. Have you ever obviously working at the Donmar and it's a it's a it's a building very much similar to what the National is or I guess what Theatre Cloyd is in Wales? Have you got any you know desire to run a building? 
<laughs> yes, more than anything. Oh my you would goodness. love to do that. I would love to. I would love to. And I, you know, I have applied for jobs. I did go up for the Theatre Club, actually. It's one of my favourite theatres. I love it. Um, but, you know, I think maybe I'm not ready yet. Um, I've got very close on a couple of occasions for different theatres. You know, my, my sense is that I am a building-based person. I felt very attached. I like being part of a community. I like... Um, that's the part of theatre I think I like the most. And I think if you're in a building, you can have that community. Um, I recently directed a show at the Watermill. And um, it was just joyous to see how that theatre company um, works. Like Paul Hart is such an inspirational artistic director and there was something lovely about how everyone was working there was a real sense of shared ownership in all of the theatre pieces um, and I like that so yes yeah, some sometime Adam I'm I'll be there what is your process to finding new work um do you how do you go about selecting a project or going after a project well, I mean, it's different. Sometimes I get, sometimes um, it comes through my agent, but I'm more and more, I'm developing my own work and that's what excites me. So um, I've just got a grant on a new musical that I'm working with um, Chris Bush and Matt Winkworth. And the, um, and that was something, actually it was during lockdown and Matt, Matt posted, does anyone have any work for a composer? So I pitched a project to him. I'm working on another new musical with Michael Conley. Um, and I just rung him up and I said, can I pitch this idea to you? Um, I've done a lot of work recently. Um, well, I've just done The Wicker Husband with Reese Jennings and Darren Clark. Mm. And when you get into a good working relationship, which is fantastic. So I'm trying to evolve that and we're working on another project ourselves. So those are things that um, I just take inspiration and, and I, I feel like I know the sort of work that I really want to do now, which is sort of big and bold and quite political and potentially non-naturalistic. And I'm enjoying working more and more in the musical form. I think that's where I really want to stay. Um, in, terms of, in terms of other work, yeah, it just comes through my my agent occasionally a writer will send me a script and I'll go oh I'd love to direct it but usually if 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 they're sending me a script that's part of the they know I'm a director so that's part of why they're sending it to me um I think I, you know, I did years and years and years ago I I, I did make a real play to, to direct a, a uh, a play. I just, I read this play and I went, oh my goodness, this is the most extraordinary play. Everyone needs to see it. So I, I went to the writer and I said, please, please, can I direct it? And he got back and he said, I'm really sorry. Richard Wilson's directing it. And I was like, oh, well, I think, I think, I think I'll let that one go then. And of course, and the play was Lungs. And Lungs is now Duncan McMillan and it's now on with Claire Foy and Matt Smith at the Old Vic. So that was quite exciting to kind of read that play before Duncan had really made his name, right at the beginning going, oh my God, when this gets on stage, it's going to wow people. And of course mm. it did. You've, you've directed a lot of, uh, and looked after a lot of straight theatre, but you've, you, do you in, you've done a lot of musicals now. Do you enjoy musicals? Do you enjoy directing musicals? And do you direct them in the same way you would a play? Uh, yes. 
yes and no. I mean, yes, I enjoy musicals. I'll be honest, Adam, I probably prefer directing musicals. Um, I think, again, it's that community. You just have more fun collaborating. I mean, I love... I love directing, but I can tell you I love it even more if there's a choreographer by my side and we're like, what are we going to do next? How are we going to make this 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 work? The same with a musical director. Um, also, it's, it's much less pressure for a director because obviously a director, you have to run the rehearsal room um, eight hours a day by yourself. If it's a straight play and with a musical, you... you um, you don't because you do your music, you do your dancing and you do your scene work. And so it's split. So, you know, I I enjoy the process more working on musicals, but in terms of how I look at the text, I would say I, I work on it exactly the same as I would for a straight play. So, you know, we do do, I try not to do too much table stuff because I know actors get frustrated about that, but I do want to make sure that I'm being precise on each of the words and the punctuation is there and the rhythm of the line. I'm, you know, I'm big on rhythm and, you know, and often I think the musical theatre actors can understand the rhythm of a line in a different way because they've got that musical knowledge. So I'm like always trying to encourage musical theatre actors to use their musical knowledge in just looking at text without music does that does that make Mm. sense yeah yeah what do you when you're in between work what do you do to keep creative um do you see a lot of theatre Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I think it's, I find it quite weird that there are directors out there who don't see theatre because um, I think you have to, you have to keep up to date with what's happening, but more importantly, you need to know who these actors out there are. Um, I see a lot of theatre. Um, you know, sometimes I get invited to things. I'm always looking at cheap theatre tickets. You know, when it's not locked down, I'll go three or four times a week, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, That's one thing I enjoy. I enjoy, I, I don't see a lot of musicals, actually. I try to go see more plays than that. I just think I have more of an enjoyment out of it. Do I don't you, know why. Can you get to see a lot? Would you I do, well, I, I, can, I'm, I can always, I try... Usually the the shows you really want to see are usually on a Thursday matinee and I can't get there. But when Wednesday matinee, anything that's a Wednesday matinee, I try to um I try to go and see. Um or oh, I've been watching a lot online now, which is yeah. which is good. Yeah, no, me too. I just watched Cypress Avenue at the Royal Court. Isn't it? Thought, yeah. I, I had to spend mean. at least an hour. I I uh, I didn't really know what to do. I couldn't quite I couldn't quite comprehend what I just watched. But then I, I, that's what I loved about it in a way, really. Yeah, my, my parents are both Irish. My, my dad's from the north, my mom's from the south. So I've got a lot of interest in Irish um, playwrights and Irish history and Irish identity. But in terms of a piece about identity, and I mean, it's brutal. It's absolutely I mean, I saw I saw it at the Royal Court, and it was interesting because I, I watched it again online, and it's um, some of the cast are different, both both equally brilliant. But it was it was interesting to see a different take on it. It is shocking, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's one thing about watching. I re I saw uh, One Man Two Governors um, on tour, and I remember finding it really really funny, and I loved it. And interestingly. 
I, you know, I get why they do the live theatre so it can you know, go to areas and people can watch it that can't get to London or can't get to the theatre. But my enjoyment, because I had seen it in the theatre, when you watch it on screen, it's, it's being dictated again by a, a TV director or a camera di- director, which decides where your focus is. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things what, makes, what made that play very funny for me was the little things that were happening not really at the center of that scene at that time, because there's a lot going on. And I thought, oh, that's interesting how it, it's changed my... Um, and did you, you found it. it less funny then? Yeah, I found it less entertaining and less funny. It's interesting. I, I, when I watched it, there's that scene. There's the two of them. There's Ollie, Chris, and James Corden, and I can't even remember what they're talking about now. But they're like arguing over an ironing board, and the close-up on their faces was hilarious. So actually, what I found is because when I, I saw it when it was in the West End, and I was a lot further back, so actually I some of the facial expressions. Well, I quite enjoyed the zooming in and being able to catch those little nuances. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, let's not argue that, that, that streaming is, is going to take over from live theatre. There's nothing that beats live theatre. And at least we have this to hold on to during lockdown. But I'm really hopeful that we can get the live theatre happening again soon. I mean, it's, it's something that needs to be protected. It really does. Do you enjoy the uh, casting process of casting a musical? And uh, what sort of advice would you give to an actor walking into your audition for a show? Yeah, casting's one of my favourite bits. As I said, I work with Anne McNulty and she, I just learned so much from her. Um, I love casting, love it. I spend much longer on casting than I need to, but it's just... You asked about like what I do to keep creative. I do sometimes put together like, I'll like read a play and I'll put together little, you know, uh, cast lists in my head. You know, I do, do, I do think about that a lot. In terms of advice, oh gosh. I mean, I do do casting workshops. So I'm trying to condense it all down. I think it's absolutely crucial that you read the play, the amount of people who come in and go, I've just read the sides because it, it, you have to remember an audition is not about you coming in to get the job. It's about you coming in to meet, to meet the team because you might not be right for this. And it's about starting a relationship up. I think that's important. But also, if you don't like the play or the musical, then there's no real reason to come in. So, you know, I'd like people to read the play um, and to make a choice. I think that's also something that's really important. Say hello to everyone, to remember there's a pianist in the room. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but uh, more than anything, I think the chat is as important as the performance. What I want to see is that someone's going to sit down and they want to be creative. They want to have questions. They want to be alert. They want to be engaged in the process. Um, so I, I, I put value on that two minutes. That's all we get. Two minutes at the beginning of a meeting going, who are you? Where'd you come from? You know, what is it that excites you about theatre? I just want to get a little sense of your passion for theatre. I've mainly spoken to actors um, that do plays rather than musical theatre. And they say the audition process, there's a lot more of what they call the chat, you know, sit down, have a chat. Um, and I think in musical theatre, there's a lot more 
um, kind of come in, give your 12 bars. Is it like come in, sing, go? Yeah. And um, I think, I don't know, I, I get very nervous in auditions um, and I think probably the chat would help. Um, kind of calm my nerves, talk about, you know, what you've seen or what you think about the piece or... Um, and I've I've kind of tried to change my approach to auditions and think of it like a first day of rehearsals so that if I do make any mistakes, if I do go up on a line or um, sing a wrong mm -hmm. bar, then, you know, it doesn't really matter because... I'm not handing my power out. I just think, well, I'm coming in. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna treat this like a first day of rehearsals. And I think that's a really good advice. Yeah, I haven't heard that um, before first day of rehearsal. I, I, but I think that is really good advice. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have heard that the other musical theatre meetings, um, you don't get to do the chat. And a lot of people have said, oh, you're quite unusual the way you do it. I just, to me, that's what I'm looking for. And what I've been told from people who've given me feedback on the interviews afterwards is that it that I'm quite good at getting people relaxed because of it. Because, you know, it means that you kind of go, great, let's have a little chat. Okay, get up and sing. And you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter. No one cares if you get a note wrong or if you have to stop or if you go back or if you forget something. You know, it, it, it needs to be an enjoyable process. Otherwise, we're not going to see the best for, from, from the actor. Mm. What's, um, what's next for you? And what are you... What's the one thing you're looking forward to doing once all this goes back to normal? Oh, gosh. Honestly, just being back in a room with my friends, um, seeing theatre and, um, yeah, I just think you can't take – the connection is what I found really difficult in lockdown. We can do this via – you know, we can meet people via Zoom or call people, and it's lovely, but I think that real connection, people, you know, in a room watching something collectively is is is, is what I've made my, my life, you know, so I, I can't wait for that to happen. I mean, I've got a lot of projects that are supposed to be happening, quite a few that have been cancelled. My last show opens on the day theatre's locked down. Yeah, so that was quite heartbreaking. We literally opened, we got the, we got the news and it was our press night and then we closed it. Um, I'm about to go and I'm supposed to be doing Indecent Proposal at Southwark, which is a new musical by Dylan Schlossberg and, and Michael Conley. And that's, it's brilliant. It's not actually based on the film. It's based on the book. So it's a bit different to the film, but it's, you know, I think it's a really beautiful musical that's looking at like female, like uh, power and how people abuse power and negotiation. And it's a great story. I was also supposed to be working on, um, a piece with BYMT, British Youth Music Theatre. That has been postponed now. Um, and then there's another R&D that I've got that we, is just hanging. So I think like everyone else, we're just waiting to know when can we get back in a room. And also when we get back in a room, what are we allowed to do? Because it's going to be very difficult to do socially distanced theatre. I don't, I don't know how that's going to work. So I think we just need some guidelines pretty soon from the government. I do think we are going to see, certainly over this next few years, um, producers doing a lot more 
two-handers or um, plays with small casts. Um, I guess even, you know, maybe the social distancing aspect has to be kind of, you know, taken into consideration. But I do think it's going to be smaller productions. Um, Possible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think everyone I know, the the the, the money, the the economics of it has made putting on shows impossible. The only way they're going to get back on their feet is to do is to get audiences back in. And I think it'll be a lot of very, very, very small cast because they have no money. They've used up all their reserves. Theaters. It's going to be small casts. It's going to be safe plays, I reckon. Plays that are going to get an audience in rather than uh, risky plays that, you know, that people might not necessarily know, titles that people don't know, new plays, new musicals. I think they're going to be very hard to sell. So I think I, think I am nervous about what's going to happen when we open up. I really am. And I hope we can get through it that stage soon and we'll have a, I don't know, the, you know, the other side is that there'll be this huge burst of creativity. Everyone who's been locked up desperate to do brilliant work and, and that will manifest on our stages in like, I don't know, within five years. I hope, I hope that's the case. 